And now, top five insane Republican lies about the Senate health care bill. Number five, Kellyanne Conway told ABC's George Stephanopoulos, quote, these are not cuts to Medicaid, George. Thanks, Kelly, but actually 74 million people who rely on Medicaid are at risk to lose coverage under the Senate version of the ACA repeal, including 17 million non-elderly women. P.S. Medicaid covers one in five women of reproductive age and 45% of births in the U.S. each year. But thanks for your outright lie. Number four. Tom Price said, quote, we would not have individuals lose coverage, end quote, to Dana Bash on CNN. Thanks, Tom. But actually, 22 million Americans are about to lose their health insurance because of your insistence on pushing them out of the healthcare system. So on behalf of the majority of those 22 million Americans, aka the women you're trying to fuck over, please stop trying to rewrite generic YA dystopian novels. Did you know that Fifty Shades was originally fanfic written about Twilight? That's what you are. You're not even good enough to be a YA novel. You're the smutty fanfic version of American supervillains. Number three. Senator Pat Toomey told Dan Diamond on CBS that the bill will, quote, make permanent the Medicaid expansion and, quote, no one loses coverage. <laughs> There's a theme here. Thanks, Pat. Actually, one little note. The Senate health care bill puts a phase out of the ACA's Medicaid expansion in place for 2021 after you've killed off the people who didn't vote for your sorry ass. And like we said, 22 million people are going to lose coverage. 22 million people! Number two. In May of 2017, speaker and professional fuckboy Paul Ryan talked to George Stephanopoulos on ABC about the House health care bill. He said, quote, Under this bill, no matter what, you cannot be denied coverage if you have a pre-existing condition. End quote. That was not true then, and it is not true now, even under the Senate version of the bill that, once again, denies people coverage for their pre-existing conditions. In fact, effervescent bro of my nightmares, Paul Ryan, these bills practically make being a woman a pre-existing condition, or at least one who has a C-section, reports her abusive husband, or dares to seek medical attention after her rape. New idea. Paul Ryan retires, but only after passing legislation to make being a straight white man a pre-existing condition, and not just one that disqualifies you from healthcare access, but also from the entirety of public life. Leave Earth, Paul. Number one, Congressman Labrador, that's his real name, told Shannon Moody of KLEW, quote, nobody dies because they don't have access to healthcare. Congressman Labrador, you dog, you sweet, Dumb, stupid, ignorant, entirely moronic, little, actually medium-sized, probably big, dog. In 2009, a study showed that 45,000 people a year die because they don't have adequate health coverage. But acknowledging that study would probably force you to stop telling politically convenient lies, and we know that wouldn't be easy for you. Maybe next time you can stick to talking about what you do know a lot about. Chasing tennis balls in an open field. Over the last couple years, the political climate in the U.S. has become increasingly scary. People of color are under attack. Queer and trans people are under attack. Women's rights, you guessed it, they're under attack. The post-election vibe amongst young women is, this sucks. I want to help, but how? My name is Jill Gutowitz. And I'm Carmen Rios. We're bringing together your favorite stars with politicians, activists, and analysts to talk current issues, U.S. government, and activism. We're all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of wokeness. This is The, the Bossy, Bossy Show. Show.
Coming up, we're talking to Raquel Willis. Raquel is a writer, activist, and the national organizer for the Transgender Law Center. We're going to talk about the Senate health care bill and what it means for women, disabled people, seniors, LGBTQ, people of color, poor people. Okay, really any marginalized community. Or really everyone. Then we've got Catherine Spiller checking in. She's the executive director of The Feminist Majority, which is a political nonprofit that fights for women's equality. Okay, so this has been another garbage week in a garbage lifetime. <laughs> in a dumpster fire society. <laughs> we are the we are the human garbage burning in the dumpster fire. Yeah. So Monday, uh, the CBO score came out. That is the Congressional Budget Office, uh, which measures, they basically say, here's how this will actually affect our country mm-hmm. based on statistics. And then the GOP will always respond and be like, actually, <laughs> based on my opinion. <laughs> well, also, it's always scary. Like, I remember the first time we went through this, um, when Speaker of the House and fuckboy Paul Ryan found out that writing health care bills that cover millions, or I guess <laughs> remove, strip coverage yeah, from millions of Americans is hard. Um they the CBO score was straight up. They were like, oh, look, the CBO score proves that we're going to save money. And the CBO score was like, we will save money because there will be people who they're just dead. So they don't cost anything anymore because they've they've passed on. Um, mm. So the CBO score this time showed that yet again. Yeah, there's some there's some dead people in there. There's 22 million people losing coverage and 800 billion dollars being taken away from Medicaid, which um, Kathy will talk to us about later. So, yeah, basically this bill is no better than the first version or the first or the second version. Um, There was supposed to be today's Thursday. We're recording this on Tuesday. So we were originally planning to be like, today is Thursday. There has been a vote by now. We are either colossally fucked. Yeah, like enjoy your last moments. Yeah. So... What happened, though, as of Monday or Tuesday, I don't remember, was the vote got pushed back. So now we're waiting till after the Independence Day recess. And then we are going to we we have no control. The Senate is going to vote on if 22 million people will lose health care. The thing to be doing this week is or this following week is going to town halls. If you can find out that you have a town hall nearby go, especially if it's with a Republican uh, representative or senator, because it's so important. Literally, lives are on the line. Like, we li- I f- we joke a lot about how we're all going to die on this podcast. Literally, this feels so bad. We're all going to die. We had our nuclear war episode where we joked about dying. Still a threat of us all dying. Oh, yeah. No, like, there's definitely multiple threats, but this is so so real and happening and will affect so many people including you even if like even if you are a privileged person who this won't necessarily directly affect it actually will because your premiums will go up anyway so so yeah i also feel obligated to uh report for our listeners that uh the senate wrote this bill entirely in secret um 13 old white men met in secret and nothing gay happened (laughs) Instead, no, this the, happened. 
something gay happened. Whoa! <laughs> That's why they were like, we'll release the bill. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, something gay happened. Yeah, maybe that was the real act of resistance. And that yeah. was like, whatever. Whatever gay thing happened in the Senate meetings between the 13 white men, the 13 old white men, which, by the way, like, when it was announced that 13 old white men would be, like, put in a little uh, circle inside of a room with, like, Mitch McConnell in the middle playing Duck, Duck, Goose until they could figure out how to write a health care bill, a bunch of people were like, uh... So, like, you're not going to invite, like, I don't know, a, a woman or, like, a, a, a person, person of, color. of color. And the GOP response the GOP response was, we're not here to play identity politics. Right before they started, like, slashing Medicaid funding, banning federal funding for Planned Parenthood. By the way, the ban for federal funding for Planned Parenthood is quote unquote temporary but I've seen The Handmaid's Tale and I've read the book and I know what happens don't ever let them do anything temporarily that you don't want them to do forever I'm reading the book right now it's so fucking dark I'm shook yeah my favorite thing maybe to come out of this was when Kellyanne Conway said that if you don't have enough money to get health care after this just get a job okay so all of the disabled people who are have literally no choice but to have this health care. Yep, Medicaid. So they should get a job. And all the kids that this covers, poor families, so they should get jobs. I mean, I think a lot of people think of Medicaid incorrectly. Um, and I know, like, we'll talk to Kathy about Medicaid, but I think a lot of people sort of think of Medicaid as, like, this uh, this thing that no one needs, when in reality a lot of us will, maybe even without realizing it, honestly, I think, just, like, be impacted by Medicaid funding. Like, there's so many people who dip into the Medicaid pot. Like, you might be on a Medicaid plan in your state um, because of Medicaid expansion, which is going to go away under the ACA. So, like, you literally might be like, well, I'm good because I have health care, but, like, your health care is funded by Medicaid. Medicaid is what makes it possible for people to go to Planned Parenthood who don't have insurance. It's what makes it possible for some people to have babies and actually pay for the cost. So I think um, – the Medicaid funding is a huge deal, and it's, like, why Republican people even are opposed to the bill. So we're going to talk to Kathy, uh, who – hang on, what is she – I keep fucking putting it down. So we're going to talk to Kathy Spiller. She is the executive director of the Feminist Majority, uh, and uh, – but just before we do really quick, <laughs> I just want to say the amount of times per week that – men challenge me on oh really if the patriarchy still exists then why does whatever they say if anyone ever challenges you on oh really the patriarchy please all you have to say is that 13 straight white men wrote this fucking bill that is going to obliterate health care for our entire nation that's patriarchy okay let's talk to kathy Okay, we are here with Catherine Spiller. Hi, Kathy. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Catherine is the executive director of the Feminist Majority, which is a political nonprofit that fights for women's equality. Um, so we have a few questions about the Senate health care bill, a.k.a. Trump care. Uh-huh. Um, so first of all, can you just like give us a little briefing? Like, What is the impact of Trump care? Um, like, Who's the most at risk? What's the biggest impact on women? It's a disaster, <laughs> <That's>, right? <laughs> period. Uh, 
it's going to hit people across the board. Um, it's estimated that some 22 or 23 million people are going to lose their health insurance by 2026 if uh, this Trump Care bill passes. Uh, and, you know, even if you don't lose your health insurance, uh, Trump Care is going to threaten, sorry, threaten the quality of care that you get, uh, and it's going to drive up costs for everyone eventually. Um, so it's, it's a disaster. But it especially does impact uh, women, especially reproductive rights and health for women, uh, because it's going to eliminate guaranteed maternity coverage in the private insurance marketplace. Um, it's going to further restrict abortion access, and it's going to make it much more difficult for women with pre-existing conditions to even get coverage at any price. Um, so it's, it's really hitting hard at women. Um, and I can also talk about what it's going to do to the Medicaid program, which is where, you know, a lot of the focus has been because um, so many people um, depend on Medicaid. It's, it's the largest uh, public health insurance program. It covers, just to show you how big it is, half of all childbirths in the United States are covered by the Medicaid health insurance program. Uh, Two-thirds of all the beneficiaries of Medicaid uh, are women. And uh, it's every one in five women who are of reproductive age, um, and that includes uh, black women, Latinas, Asian-American women especially, uh, but uh, all women. And so it's, it really is going to dramatically impact the kinds of health care that women and especially young women can get. Wow. I feel like I feel like naive or dumb or something because I just like when I'm listening to you talk about this, I just sit here thinking, okay, so if all these people are going to lose health care and then it's going to drive up other people's premiums and whatnot, what is the point? Like it's just it's just it just feels so clearly evil and bad for everyone in this country. I don't like why. Right. Well, I think Trump said it best. It's mean. Right. Um, It's because. Uh, they're going to give huge tax cuts to the very wealthy. Uh, they're talking about cutting $834 billion out of the Medicaid public health insurance program. And that's so that they can give tax breaks of over $600 billion, $664 billion, uh, to the richest Americans, along with tax breaks to drug companies, medical device companies, and health insurance. That's really what it's about. Uh, I've heard it described in some press coverage as the largest transfer of assets and, and wealth from the poorest people in this country and the largest number of people to just a very small handful of very wealthy people. Uh, they're calling it, you know, they're going to reform health insurance. Really, it, it guts health insurance, and it's all to be able to say we've saved $800 billion in, in uh, federal spending on health care, and we're now going to turn around and give over $600 billion in tax cuts. That's what it's really all about. Didn't we at least, like, didn't politicians used to at least kind of hide this shadiness? <laughs> like, wasn't there some yeah. sort of we should hide that we're making money from all of this, and well, now they, it's just out there? Yeah, they should. I mean, they, they should be ashamed of themselves, really. Right. They should be ashamed of themselves. Um, and I think a lot of people have seen through this. I mean, we've seen on just an incredible amount of protest activity and people calling and writing and emailing their uh, members of Congress uh, in the House and now in the Senate, uh, people going to you know, town hall meetings, going to their offices, 
demanding to meet with them um, and and calling the press out if if they won't meet with them. So I, I you know, it's having an impact. It's definitely having an impact. But we have to keep fighting because we we're we're fighting for ourselves. We're fighting for uh, everyone who really. Uh, depends on being able to buy health insurance that we've been able to under Obamacare, but but the costs are going to skyrocket. And by the way, if you have a pre-existing condition, uh, everybody hears about that. Well, what does that really mean? Uh, it, it, it means they're not going to mandate coverage uh, by health insurance companies of pre-existing conditions, uh, or, the, or it's going to cost you a huge amount more if you have a pre-existing condition. And for women... Even being a woman is a pre-existing condition um, yes. in, in, under Trump care because it means um, uh, if you've had uh, uh, if you've been raped or sexually assaulted or you're a survivor of domestic violence, uh, they're going to consider all of that a pre-existing condition. Or if you've um, uh, had a baby, uh, now you've gone through childbirth, especially if you had a cesarean section, that's a pre-existing condition. Uh, mental health and uh, depression. All of those are pre-existing conditions. Uh, we always say, you know, being a woman um, becomes a pre-existing condition again under Trump care. So women and, and young women especially have a lot at stake in this fight, a lot at stake. And, and our senators and members of the House uh, of Representatives have to hear from us as they've never heard from us before. Yeah. And, well, so how does Trump care in particular – is such a huge thing. But how does it sort of fit into the larger, like, war on women's rights and women's health that's being waged by the GOP and the Trump administration? Well, they, you know, they're, they're focused on uh, family planning and birth control. It's like they're obsessed with it. <laughs> you know, Trump care is going to prohibit uh, the Medicaid program, this biggest health, public health insurance program in the country, will no longer be able to cover any visits to Planned Parenthood, for example. So it's millions of, uh, of women who depend on Planned Parenthood, not only for birth control, uh, but for cervical cancer screenings and breast cancer screenings and, and just in, in general health uh, health care. Uh, you're not going to be able to go there if, you're, if you are covered now under the Medicaid public health insurance program if Trump care passes. Um, they're going to they're going to reform, uh, change the way that Medicaid pays for family planning services. So what they're going to do when they cut Medicaid, the way they're going to cut it is they're going to make a per capita cap on how much anyone who gets Medicaid health insurance can spend. So, you know, if you spend whatever the cap is, say it's, say it's $1,000 or $2,000, anything over and above that they won't cover. Um, and so... Uh, birth control um, is covered under Medicaid right now because of Obamacare, uh, but it's not going to cover the most effective and expensive forms of birth control if Trump care passes. So you might be able to get birth control pills, uh, but you're not going to be able to get the IUD, for example. Um, or if they, if a state gets a block grant for Medicaid, um, which means just a limited amount of money, and they got to figure out how to cover all the all the health care needs uh, of Medicaid-eligible recipients with that. It isn't going to be enough. You know they're going to start cutting. Um, so it, it's part of the overall uh, attack on birth control. And by the way, they're also going to the Trump administration. 
they're going to leave the mandate to cover birth control in the private health insurance marketplace right now. But um, they are going to increase the kinds of companies that can deny birth control coverage to their employees. Right now, um, only a limited uh, number under the Hobby Lobby uh, Supreme Court decision, which people might have heard about, um, a uh, small sort of family-owned or closely held corporation can decide, because it has a religious preference, how, how corporations can have a religious preference. <laughs> I don't know, but that's how it says. Uh, they, can, they can say we're not going to provide uh, birth control coverage under the mandate to do so under our health insurance program. Uh, the Trump administration is, is right now working on regulations to increase the kinds of companies that can uh, deny their employees health insurance coverage for birth control. They're going to say publicly held companies now don't also, you know, if you're a publicly traded company on the New York Stock Exchange, but you have a religious or moral pre uh, preference, you no longer have to provide uh, coverage for contraception. Um, and, of course, on the abortion issue, um, they, are, they are saying that uh, in the insurance marketplace that they are providing subsidies for, um, which is how so many people have now been able to purchase health insurance because they get subsidies or, or they're going to convert those to tax credits and it's going to be worth a lot less. They're going to say that you cannot buy a policy that covers abortion, and they're going to say that small employers in providing health insurance coverage for their employees are no longer going to be able to, to purchase policies that cover abortion, which means in a very short period of time, no policies will cover abortion. So, you know, they're using every scheme they can think of um, to go after women's reproductive health and rights um, uh, under the guise of reform and, and so-called religious or moral preferences. What do you think it means that um, the vote was pushed back on the bill? And what can, what can activists and everyone do to keep up the fight until then? Well, we had a we had a small victory today, and in, in that the uh, yeah. the scheduled vote in the Senate couldn't couldn't move forward. That means that um, McConnell, the Senate Majority Republican leader, does not have uh, the 50 votes that he needs. Uh, there's 52 Republicans in the U.S. Senate, uh, uh, 48 uh, Democrats and Independents who who caucus with the Democrats. Uh, so he can only lose. Uh, two uh, or three, three really, of the Republicans before he can't overcome that. Right now, if it was a 50-50 tie, if he only lost two Republicans and it was a 50-50 tie, uh, Vice President Pence could come in and break the tie. But if you lose three Republicans, uh, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, Pence can't break a tie. So it would lose. What this means is that Senator Collins of Maine has said she cannot vote for Trump care as it's currently structured. And there must be another two or three or four who are saying the same thing, um, although they haven't said it publicly. You know, everybody says, oh, those four right-wing conservatives um, are, are now like Ted Cruz or saying they can't vote for it. Don't, don't be fooled by that. They're, they're, that's to bargain. They're looking for other um, things from the majority leader. Uh, they're going to come around because this is a very cruel this is a very mean-spirited uh, uh, bill, this Trump care. They're going to get everything they want. So let's not be fooled by that. Who we have to focus on is to make sure that Senator Collins of Maine um, hangs tight and doesn't give in to the terrible pressure she's going to get 
to change her mind. But there's about three or four other senators that uh, your listeners can also uh, help us reach out to. And by the way, these senators, uh, wherever your listeners are, it doesn't matter that they don't live in Maine or some of these other states I'm going to mention. How these senators vote is going to impact all of our health insurance, no matter where we live. So just because we don't live in Maine, we still got to talk to her as a country. Um, as concerned people from all across the country because she has to vote against this um, to save our health insurance, too. So the others that are really important for people to focus on um, is in Nevada, Senator Dean Heller. He has said he is very upset by the cuts to Medicaid that are in the Trump care proposal because Nevada is one of the states, just like California and New York and several other states that have used the Obama Medicaid program to expand the coverage and include more women in the Medicaid and more people in the Medicaid program. So um, to lose Medicaid like that is going to terribly hurt people in Nevada, and he knows that. So we've got to be sure that we are calling and emailing Senator Heller in Nevada. Um, In West Virginia, uh, a uh, woman senator, Shelley Moore Capito, is also very concerned about what happens um, to the people of West Virginia. It was another state that expanded Medicaid. This cut to Medicaid will terribly hurt the population of West Virginia. It's a poor population to begin with. Plus, they have a terrible opioid epidemic there. And by the way, Trump, you know, he says he cares about opioid addiction, and and so, it, none these bills do nothing to help on that. Um, so don't be fooled by that. Right. Uh, and then finally, in uh, Arizona, Senator Flake. And in Alaska, Senator Lisa Murkowski. Those are the five um, senators, including Susan Collins, that everybody thinks we have the best chance of getting to vote against Trump care. But they have got to hear from everybody, no matter where you live. And there's one phone number that everybody can call and get through to any of their offices. It's the Central Capital phone number, the switchboard. That number is 202-224-3121. You can call that number and you can ask for Senator Heller of Nevada and they'll connect you. And then after you say vote no, blah, 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 you can hang up and call back the same number, 202-224-3121. This time ask to speak to West Virginia Senator Shelley Moore Capito. And just go down the line and keep doing that every day. They've got to hear from us. Um, it's making a difference, but we cannot give up now. We're so close to defeating this. Um, but I'll tell you, we're up against the, the big money and the big guns, um, and that's why everybody's got to do this. Uh, they've got to do their part. It's life and death for, for many people. It really is. For the disabled, for uh, for cancer survivors. Uh, you're talking life and death. One last question. Um, I mean, crossing our fingers, praying, uh, you know, that it doesn't that it doesn't pass. If it doesn't pass, what happens next? Like, do, do they just go back and try and rewrite it for a third time? Well, you know, it's hard to know what these guys will do. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, uh, but they, they've sort of made noises that if they can't get this done by August 1st, so we have all of July mm-hmm. to be fighting on this, um, they're just going to move on to something else. But 
you know, Trump said the truth when he said we got to do this health care thing first because then we're going to move on to tax reform, which really means tax cuts for the rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're, they got to have some money to go give away to the to the rich. And, and they, the Medicaid and the health care system is the pot of money that they're going after. Um, I wish they'd go after defense budget. You know, we could do yeah. without a few more airplanes and ships, and mm-hmm. that alone would be uh, enough uh, for the tax cuts they want to do. But instead, they're attacking the people who can least protect themselves. Um, but I'm hoping that if it's defeated, they'll say, well, we tried that and, and move on to something else. And we'll have to fight them on that, but at least we would have saved health care for the people of this country. I want to thank you for covering this. This is so important for young people and young women especially. And um, and their voices just have to be heard. We, we can make a difference if we all speak up. We are here with Raquel Willis. Hi, Raquel. How are you? Hi. I am actually a little bit under the weather, but I am so glad to be on. I know that sucks. I'm sorry, but thank you for bearing with us. Um, if you don't know, but you probably know, Raquel is a writer, activist, and a national organizer for the Transgender Law Center. Um, we're super pumped to have you here. Um, we're going to talk about healthcare because that is what's plaguing us today. There's a new thing every day. Okay, that sounds great. And considering I'm sick, I think it's <laughs> perfect time to have that conversation. Right. <laughs> Um, okay, so just to like kind of start off a little, um, because we speak to a lot of like young people who are like want to get involved and, you know, kind of maybe sometimes feel helpless, don't know what to do, don't know what they can do. Um, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you kind of got involved in activism? Sure. So I like to think that my activist inclination started as a kid. My parents were very much involved in our church, um, and I was raised Catholic, right? So there was this huge component of stewardship in my upbringing, and then I was also very much involved with the uh, local Red Cross Youth uh, Board in Augusta, Georgia, which is my hometown. So there was always this, like, thread of volunteerism and giving back to the community. So when I got to college and I was really actually engaging with um, my identity as a queer transgender woman, um, I just realized, you know, I wanted to be with my people, my community, and give back in that way. And so activism was really prominent in my life from college forward. Um, We fought for expanding the non-discrimination policy for students. So we wanted that to include gender identity. Unfortunately, it didn't happen while I was there, but it happened a few years after I left. So I, I hope maybe, you know, some of the work that I did there laid the foundation for that to happen. Um, and from there, I just branched out into actual communities in Atlanta, Georgia, and did some uh, community organizing around pre-arrest diversion and mass incarceration, particularly focused on black trans women in Atlanta. And from there, now I am a national organizer for the Transgender Law Center. So it's been a steady climb of, um, I guess, more and more responsibility. 
And how important is digital activism today? Because you're pretty big on like social media, and that seems to be a big part of everything. I think digital activism is so important and digital organizing. Um, and to me, that is really um, harnessing the tools and um, the social capital of uh, social media to really fight for a cause or get people engaged. Um, and so we just saw with the 2016 election, right, a lot of organizing was happening through um, the e-world, right? So through text messaging, through um, uh, the Internet and social media. I mean, we also saw it happen, uh, saw it being used for the worst, right, with people like Donald Trump um, and other folks just you know, bombarding us with information that we didn't need, right? <laughs> um, but, I, <laughs> but I really think that um, this is something that we have to incorporate into everyday life now and, and really take on seriously. The Internet is not this um, new unknown frontier anymore. Like, it's right in our faces. And one thing that's important to me is marrying the experience of being an organizer on the ground with what that can mean um, leveraging that social capital and social media. And so I use my platform to um, uplift stories about marginalized folks, particularly trans folks. Just now I was um, elevating information and a GoFundMe about, um, unfortunately, the 14th trans woman of color who was murdered in Athens, Georgia, which coincidentally is where I went to school at the University of Georgia. Um, and so it's so important that we use these moments to talk about people like Ava Barron. She was 17. Her life was taken um, and really see how we can get people engaged. And one way is giving back through GoFundMe and um, following up with those stories with those families and communities. Right. Totally. Uh, what could you, if you could even sum it up, what has life been like? How has it been different under the Trump administration? And what kind of things have you kind of started organizing or leaned into organizing since? Well, you know, what's funny is that I, I, I've talked to a lot of um, seasoned organizers, organizing for years, right? Because believe it or not, there are transgender Doing this work even before transgender was like a word that everyone knew <laughs> right <laughs> um and so really the sentiment on that day in 2016 that go down in infamy or has already <laughs> down in infamy, <laughs> <Kidding>. um <laughs> was really for me this sense of um actually exhaustion right and and feeling like things were only going to get worse because many of us in marginalized communities were already doing this work, right? You yeah. know, it's great that so many people showed up to um, mass mobilizations like the Women's March and the um, marches against the Muslim ban, et cetera, et cetera. But many of us have been showing up to these marches for years with little to no people showing up to support us, right? And so it's, it was... Um, um, and I felt, I felt so naive, 
because I was like, there's no way. It's yes. not this bad. <laughs> right? If people aren't this, uh, don't have such a warped idea of the rest of the world. And unfortunately, I was wrong. Um, so I think one of the things about people plugging into activism and organizing now is I hope that we can get beyond just being reactionary. Um, in the circles that I'm in, there's a lot of talk of, uh, you know, of course we have to react, right, because the Trump administration is just rolling out so much um, kind of this ridiculous mass of, like, hate and ignorance all the time. It's like this huge yarn ball that's just unraveling all the time. It's like, when is it going to end? When is it going to end? <laughs> we haven't run out of ideas yet. <laughs> um, but it, it's also about that visioning process, right? So beyond these kind of um, tangible things, right, that are things that we all we already had, right? So that's we're not even um, having the ability to think beyond what we had and actually progress. Because we're trying to, to fight back the regression, right? We're trying to fight back things in the trans community like um, the protections for transgender students. Well, we had that, right? So now we've got to do that and then also think beyond that and hope that one day we can get to a point again where we can go even further. So we've got to bring back that envisioning. Um, we've got to um, try not to be so exhausted with, all that they're throwing at us constantly, and that is difficult. But it, but it's work that we are fully capable of doing. Totally. Okay, so let's talk about healthcare. Um, this has all been really crazy, and this is the you know second version of Trump Care. Um, there was supposed to be a vote on Thursday. This episode comes out on Thursday, so it would have been today. Uh, but now it's got it got pushed to after the July Fourth recess. Is this the third version of Trump Care? Is it? Well, right, because one failed, <clears throat> one passed the House, and now there's, like, the bananas version oh. from the Senate. I forgot about uh. that first one. Yeah, remember Paul Ryan? Yeah. He wasn't up to it. Things are Big hard. Big things are hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Raquel, what um, parts of this health care bill worry you the most or anger you the most? Um, I think all of it, honestly. Like it's, the it's entire thing. Just to... use it as kindling. Yeah. Next question. Yeah. <laughs> the bill. The fact that it exists. Right. Um, you know, I, definitely the, the thing in its entirety just needs to go away or just not even be acknowledged. But I think what has been um, kind of at the tip of people's tongues in the social justice community around trans issues has been um, really this rule as it relates to um, Obamacare, right? So under Section 1557, it prohibits discrimination based on race, skin color, all of these different things, right? And so there's, there's this um, fear that Trump will use this to further uh, discrimination in healthcare settings. So trans people already and healthcare providers for the most part that are affirming of their identities or are even well versed in, in what the specific needs of a trans individual are. And so this could make it even more difficult because if you allow and incite right this hatred against 
against trans people. Mm-hmm. It, it's only going to deepen the ignorance around our our specific healthcare needs, and also give you less of an incentive to actually learn about us and actually learn that you know we have all different types of body configurations. Some folks have surgeries. Some folks want surgeries, don't want surgeries, can have surgeries, can't have surgeries. Right? There's mm-hmm. this. There's there's such a dearth of information on, um, on on our needs, and and that infiltrates all aspects of of healthcare, right? So thinking about research, right? We are still lacking in research around the effects of hormones on the body long term. Um, we're lacking in information around also, you know, what what is the best regimen for post-surgical um, lives, right? And so mm-hmm. all of this is impacted because if you give this continued license to discriminate, it's only going to make it more difficult for us. Yeah. So, le- well, let's actually talk about, like, LGBT issues right now. Because um, I-, I think healthcare has been, like, everyone's really super zeroed in on that and, you know, with good reason. Um, but if we could zoom out for a sec... How are LGBT people affected large scale by this administration? What have been some of the biggest, you know, hits since Trump took office? Well, I, I think what was the, you know, the most talked about um, rollback was the um, inclusion of protection for, or really not even inclusion, right, but a guidance on how to um, respect. Um, and honor the identities of transgender students. Um, and so we saw that back. We've also seen um, Betsy DeVos um, <laughs> underscore that and, and basically say a few weeks ago um, that, you know, she doesn't really think that trans students need to be protected, right, aren't a protected class, all of this stuff. Right, yeah. Um, so that was at the forefront. Thanks, um, Betsy. <laughs> right. Oh, Betsy. Um, oh, Betsy. And so, <laughs> Go home. <laughs> and then so really I think the biggest thing, right, is this the political climate that we're in, right, and this emboldened antagonism against trans people. Um, yes, against LGBTQ people in general, but specifically against trans people because I, I there are a lot of people who are worried that, you know, the Supreme Court will roll back um, marriage equality. I don't really see that happening um, because even Jeff Sessions and, and some um, some other folks in the administration have said, well, you know, it's the law of the land. No, 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 no. We can't really do anything about it. Um, I'm going to try and trust that and, and hope that that is true. But the biggest things really are that now the politicians who – we were looking at sideways who were going after um, these bathroom bills, right, and, and bringing up all of these different bills. There was one bill in Texas that would allow, really, like, make it illegal for school officials and counselors and teachers to not report that a student was transgender if they disclosed them to their parents, mm-hmm. right, which, of course, would make... Lord. Many students, particularly <laughs> in the South, have a, a, a harder time, right? Because sometimes our yeah. race is being able to come out to people who aren't our families and our parents. 
so there's this emboldened climate, um, just period around hate and violence and and um, just being outright about it that is all over our legislation right now, especially with the Republicans controlling every aspect of our government. Yeah. Ay ay ay. Um, sorry, my uh, Jew coming out. Um, well, okay. I mean, that's a lot. Obviously, I feel like literally every episode we do, we're like, okay, wow, everything is so dark. Um, <laughs> we, um, technically, it is still Pride Month. Actually, what? technically, it was never Pride Month. Oh, right, because, because they the never... president never said so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Just again. speaking of, speaking of, I mean, that's cool, though, because, like, then we didn't have to, like, pretend we wanted him to show up. Right. Like, at a pride? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. With an upside-down flag. Yeah. <laughs> no one wants you here. Um, but since it is technically, but also not technically, Pride Month, um, we haven't really talked about pride at all in the show. Um, did you... Raquel, did you have any fun Pride experiences this this month? Like, how did you celebrate? Well, you know, I I don't know if I necessarily celebrate a Pride. Um, I, I think one one major conversation that has been had is that you know Pride hasn't really actually been inclusive or intersectional in the last you know few decades or so. It's increasingly become more focused on right, cisgender gay men. Right. Um, yeah. and, Everyone's and this, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Right. And, <laughs> and corporatization, right? And, and being so, um, becoming more and more capitalist at the expense of more marginalized communities. So we've seen, like, in Toronto, we've seen in New York, um, I have a friend, um, her name is Ripley Bennett. She was actually arrested in a No Justice, No Pride protest in Columbus, uh, at a Columbus, Ohio Pride last, I think it was last week. So we've seen different groups, particularly in uh, Black Lives Matter or just other marginalized groups, show up and say, actually, this is not what Pride is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about... Um, honoring the fact that, that we're actually still fighting, right? That right. this is built in resistance and protest, not showing up and throwing glitter and, and that's it. And we go home and don't have <laughs> deeper consideration for the rest of our community. Right. Um, so this Pride Month has actually been a Just little laughing heavy. at the glitter. <laughs> I was going to say, can we, can, like, if I'm I into all glitter, of that, yeah, can we keep the glitter? <laughs> the glitter okay cool like we can <laughs> protest but also throw glitter like you said that and i'm like, like glitter wiping bomb. glitter off yeah yeah we can yes we can throw glitter at our enemies <laughs> and our friends and our loved ones and ourselves <laughs> throw glitter at our enemies is <laughs> what a really do great that? no it's just like a really great slogan <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know one good thing that happened i actually um so I moved out to the Bay Area last last year, and my first, um, I guess, San Francisco Pride weekend, I actually was the keynote at the Trans Mart. Oh, that's and amazing! So that was that was great. Yeah, it was it was yeah, you know, that's a dope. showcase of people performing and all of that. And I was 
I was glad to be a part of that because that particular march, of course, is a carved out space, right? Just like the Dyke March. Like there is this element of uh, resistance in, in these kind of carved out smaller marches, right? Because we have been erased, right? Mm-hmm. Lesbians have been erased. Bisexual folks have been erased. Transgender folks have been erased. So many groups have been erased within the initialism of the LGBTQ movement. Um, totally. And so that was great. And I was glad to walk through the trans, through the streets and, you know, demand respect and um, fight against the race terror. So you celebrated Pride by continuing to do the work that you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I support I mean, you. Right. I mean, the first, you know, the Stonewall riots which, um, were happening at this time, um, this, like, span of the next few days um, in 1969, like, you know, really moved this movement into a different space, right? And and increased our consciousness. And it's so sad to think that people like Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, um, and others were a legacy for so long. Um, it's really only been the last few years that I've heard more and more people say their names and honor the work that they did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here and happy Pride, of course. Um, you can follow Raquel on Twitter at Raquel Willis underscore, and you can uh, also visit her website at RaquelWillis.com. Thank you again so much, Raquel. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Bossy Show. Make sure to tune in next week. Want to get involved? Here's something you can do right now to make a difference. Pick up the phone and call your senator. The Capitol switchboard number is 202-224-3121. Pick up the phone, call your senator. Then go to feministfightback.org to sign up to be part of the team of activists fighting not only the health care bill, but whatever's next to come from this godforsaken life. Special thanks to Raquel Willis and Catherine Spiller for being on our show. Also, special thanks to Hillary Clinton, like just for existing. It's been a while since I said so. Follow at The Bossy Show on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr for pics from inside the show and more. The Bossy Show is recorded at Sonic Pool Post Productions in Hollywood. Music by Johnny Franco and audio engineering by Drew Frost. See you next time. Jill, they can't see us. <laughs>